our great God, the creator of all things, the sustainer of all things, the only one who is worthy of our worship, the only one who is truly holy, the God of all comfort and grace, the God of all love and hope, your praise will always be on our lips. And Father, that doesn't end when we stop singing. So I pray that our hearts would continue in an attitude of worship. I pray, Father, that we would see you more clearly, that we would hear your voice. And as you promised us that your word would go forth and accomplish what you send it to accomplish, that it would do that today. By the grace of your spirit, may your word accomplish in each of us what you have purposed. In Jesus' name, amen. Luke chapter 7, verse 11. Now it happened the day after that he went into a city called Nain, and many of his disciples went with him. And a large crowd. And when he came near the gate of the city, behold, a dead man was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a large crowd from the city was with her. When the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came and touched the open coffin, and those who carried him stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. So he who was dead sat up and began to speak. And he that speaks of Jesus presented him that speaks of the young man to his mother. Then fear came upon all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet is risen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him went throughout all Judea and all the surrounding region. This is one, wow, (laughs) those meant to be together. (laughs) This is one of um, three resurrections we see Jesus perform in the Gospels. That doesn't mean he only performed three. We see him resurrect this young man the widow of Nain's son. She's not given a name, and I figured last week I named everybody. I'm not going to do that two weeks in a row. We saw Jesus raise... Oh, no, I'm wrong. There's four. Because we saw Jesus raise uh, the little girl, Jairus' daughter. Then we saw Jesus raise Lazarus. And finally, uh, Jesus rose himself. And I think that's interesting. So we're going to talk about resurrection. We're actually not going to talk about those other instances today. Um, So let's get back to this. The next day, being the day after Jesus healed the centurion's servant, right? that's what it says in verse 11, they were in a village called Nain. And I find this really interesting because this was about 25 miles from where they were in Capernaum. That would be a hard day's journey. A day's journey at that time would be somewhere around 20 miles, depending on the terrain you're covering. 
Um, but that's not like, oh, three or four hours. That's eight, nine hours of walking. Whereas 25 miles in would be even longer. But he went there. Now, Jesus, being God, and being one who always followed the will of his Father who sent him, we read about that in John 5, verse 30, he had a divine appointment in name, so they went for a walk. They probably left really early to get there on time. With the centurion's servant, Jesus was called for. And we see that happen several times uh, throughout the Gospels. The centurion sent the Jewish elders and asked Jesus to come heal his servant, uh, Jairus. He sent people and asked, well actually no, he went and asked Jesus to come and heal his daughter. Uh, the, the, oh, the guy, uh, blind somebody, blind Bartimaeus. He cried out, son of David, have mercy on me. But that's not always how it worked. The man who was at the pool of Bethesda was sitting there and Jesus came up to him. Do you want to be healed? Here, I don't think Jesus went there without a plan. I don't, that's not how he operated. I'm thinking he was in prayer and dad said, I got something pretty cool for you to do today. What's that? Walk down to Nain and I'll show you. Or walk down to Nain and this is what's going to happen. But whatever the case, nobody there sent for him. Nobody there asked. I think that's pretty cool. We're told to ask. We're told to ask, to seek, to knock. James tells us um, that... Oh, goodness gracious. It's going to be that kind of day. I've been saying that a lot lately. I think I need to get more sleep. Um, I'm going to find it. It's in James chapter something. Don't you love how organized I am? You guys can talk amongst yourselves while I get there. Um, There we go. That's James chapter 4. Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? You lust and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and war. Yet you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. Now there we are warned not to ask for things just to, for our own pleasure. But still, you don't have because you don't ask. We're told in 1 John that this is the confidence we have. That if we ask for anything according to his will, we have what we've asked for. So we are told to ask. But I know from my own life, and I'm going to make a pretty good guess that you guys have had similar experiences. If you haven't, you will. Where you need something that you don't know about. And there's only one person who can give it. And there's only one person who knows that you truly need it. And he's going to come at the right time and do that work in your life. Oh, it's not always pleasant. Because sometimes what you need is a swift kick in the behind. At least I do. But he knows. Right? This widow, when her son died, 
it never crossed her mind that she'd get him back. She didn't even know that she really needed that. All she knew was her grief and her loss. But God had a plan. His plan, always so much better than ours. And I think what this reminds us is that when we're in dire need, we can cry out to God for help, or if we don't know where to turn or what to do, this is where God meets us. He sees us, he knows us, and in Psalm 115, verse 12, we're told that he is mindful of us. And I think we're going to see an amazing example of that today. So let's go back to verse 11. Now it happened the day after he went into a city called Nain, and many of his disciples went with him in a large crowd. And when he came near the gate of the city, behold, a dead man was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a large crowd from the city was with her. So I'm calling point one the meetings, because as Jesus came to Nain, right, he was followed by his disciples and a crowd of people, and coming out of the city was the crowd of mourners heading to the cemetery. Now, keep in mind that the Jewish people buried their dead the same day that they died. So if, even if you died at nine o'clock at night, you were in the ground because it was commanded in the law. Leviticus 10, verse 4, and Deuteronomy 21, verse 23. So this was fresh. This wasn't, he died a week ago, we made the funeral arrangements, we got the caterer, uh, we, you know, we got the, we arranged everything at the cemetery, we just had our service at the church, and now we're, we're no, it happened that day. This is hours old for her. Now, Warren Wiersbe, uh, I love Warren Wiersbe, and I often read his commentaries, I don't always give him credit, <laughs> oops, um, but I, always, I like to read his commentaries. And he just he pointed something out here that I thought was amazing that I wanted to share. He points out that there are four meetings that take place. The first one is a meeting of two very different crowds. You have one crowd that is rejoicing over the work of God. And then you have one crowd that is mourning and lamenting the death of this young man. Two very different crowds, two very different mindsets. And I think that can happen in church or to us in general in life. You can be one of those crowds. Maybe you're rejoicing in what God is doing or you're mourning or lamenting something else. We'll kind of come back to that. Then we see two sons, two only sons. We see Jesus being the unique and only son of the father here on earth to die for our sins and be resurrected. Now, when Jesus is called the only son, my wife and I have only one son, but we have three kids. Now, Jesus, when he's called the only son, he is the only one of his kind. There is no other son like him. And the Bible makes that very clear. But he was still an only son. And then you have the only son of this mother. 
She was a widow, so she didn't have a husband. She didn't have any other children, and now she had her only son die. Now, he was about to be resurrected, but she didn't know that. We have two sufferers. Jesus is called a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief in Isaiah 53, verse 3. And the widow was suffering greatly at the loss of her only son. Because she didn't, it's not just that she lost her only child, which is horrible. But now she didn't have any way to care for herself any longer. That was the way it worked back then. You didn't work a lot of years, put a bunch of money in your IRA, and get to a certain age and you start drawing on it. That didn't happen back then. That's not, you had kids so that when you got old, your kids could take care of you. And then those kids would have kids for the same purpose. I hope my kids are listening. So this was not just the devastation of losing her son. She may have, and I don't know this for a fact, but considering people got paid daily back then, they didn't get a paycheck every two weeks or whatever, she may not have known how she was going to eat the next day. It may have been that desperate. And that level of suffering. And then we see two enemies. We see death, which death is our enemy. And we see death's enemy, the one who would gain a decisive victory over death for us. As a glimpse of that victory when he raises this man back to life. 1 Corinthians 15.26 tells us the last enemy that will be destroyed is death. Now, spiritually speaking, each of us is on one side or other of these meanings. Either we are rejoicing in the work of the Lord or we are lamenting death in the world. Either we are on the side of the Son who brings life or we are among the sons and daughters who face death. Either we let Jesus take our sorrows and griefs on the cross or we bear those sorrows ourselves. Either we are resting in Jesus' victory over sin and death, or we will suffer the defeat of sin in our lives. To me, the choice is quite simple. Moses, God actually, through Moses, in Deuteronomy 30, verse 19, said this to his people, Today I have given you the choice between life and death between blessings and curses. Now I call heaven and earth to witness the choice you make. Oh, that you would choose life so that you and your descendants might live. In verse 13 and 14, we see the resurrection. When the Lord saw her, He had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came and touched the open coffin, and those who carried him stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And so he who was dead, verse 15, 
sat up and began to speak. And he presented him to his mother. Now the word Jesus uses to call this man back to life as egiero. And it can simply mean to wake somebody up or to tell someone to get up if they are sitting down or lying down. But it can also mean to rouse or wake someone from death. I love that there is a word that means that. We have a word that means to wake someone from death. We say resurrection or bring back to life. But bring back to life is weak. I like resurrection. It's different than when Jesus rose Jairus' daughter. And it kind of dawned on me, and I thought about that a little bit, because we're actually given what Jesus spoke there in uh, Aramaic, Talitha Kumi. Little girl, arise. We actually thought about naming one of our daughters Talitha, because it means little girl. I don't know. remember why I got voted down on that, but that was a long time ago. Um, but here he uses a different phrase. The other one just is to get up. This one is to call back from death. Even though he did the same thing in both situations. So first, um, well, real quick, young man here simply means he was under 40. Some people think this was a child that was raised. He may be 8 years old or 10 years old. But the word young man here simply means he was under 40. Which is really depressing because I am not under 40 anymore. So biblically speaking, I am no longer a young man. But we'll start with Jesus' reason. When Jesus saw what was going on, our Lord had compassion on this woman. Because he is our high priest who can sympathize with our pain. Hebrews 4.15 tells us that. His compassion means to be moved deeply with sympathy and pity. He saw her pain. He felt her pain. The pain that sin has brought into the world when it brought death. And not only did this move Jesus to be compassionate toward her, but it moved him to be compassionate toward all of us. Two is Jesus' action. He tells her not to weep. Now, have you ever been crying over something that truly hurt? It was a deep pain wound and you're weeping. And had somebody come up to you and say, did you just stop crying? I don't think that's what Jesus said. I don't think that's how he did it. Because he was being compassionate. I think, just me, that when he looked at her and when he said, do not weep, it was to point out to her that he was going to do something that was going to bring her hope. He was going to take away the reason she was crying. Most likely, she was wailing loudly because that's what they did back then. See, if Weston was in here right now, he would have been the perfect spot just to let it all out, right? Anyways, um, Jesus walks up to the coffin, and the, those he touches it, and those burying it stop. And I don't know why. 
right? It's not, we're not told that he said anything. Just he walked up and touched it and they stopped. And then Jesus speaks life back into this man. In Acts 3.14, Jesus is called the author or originator of life. Now, the one who created life, according to John 1.3, the one who purchased life for all of us, according to 1 Peter 1.18 and 19, and the one who is life itself, according to John 14.6, here he commands life back into this young man. I love it. He's the only one who can do that, by the way. I know God has used human beings to pray for and bring other people back to life. I've heard it. But it was still the power of God. And it can only ever be the power of God that does that. I can only... This this is a little rabbit, rabbit trail. I wonder how much fun it was to be Jesus. Now, I get not, I'm not talking about the the cross and all of that. He did that out of his love and compassion for us. But there had to be moments during his life where he just got a nice little smile on his face. At the wedding in Cana, son, they're out of wine. And what does that have to do with me? She looks at the servants. Just do what he tells you. Okay. Right? Don't you think he had a smile on his face? I do. What about here? Everybody's crying. Everybody's mourning. Dead man laying there. Mother weeping. And he walks up and he's like, just get up, dude. You're not done yet. What? I'm just saying... I think there were moments when it would have been really fun to be Jesus. Walking on the water. They were afraid. It's a ghost. Don't be afraid. It's me. If it's really you, call me out on the water. And he does. And then Peter went out. I'm just throwing that out there. But then we have the man's response. When Jesus tells you to wake up from the dead, you do. That's how that works. This was evidenced when the man sat up. Remember, the coffin was open, so he didn't hit his head. And he began to speak. There's a few places in the Bible where something is said, but we're not told what it was. When the seven thunders speak in the book of Revelation, John went to write it down. And the angel told him, don't write that down. Nobody gets to know, not until it happens. Now, there have been books for for the last couple thousand years, volumes written about what the seven thunders said. And I can only imagine how dumb a person has to be to try to write a book about something when God said you don't get to know this. It's like all the people who write and or predict the return of Christ. Jesus said, you will not know. Only the Father in heaven knows, not even the angels. So if anybody tells you, well, I know when Jesus is coming back, you can just look at them and go, well, you're an idiot. Because he told me that you wouldn't know that. That's why we don't predict his return. I'm hoping it's soon. I'm hoping he comes before I finish this sentence. But we don't get to know. 
Here's one of the places where we're not told. I really want to know, though. Now, I'm not going to guess. Um, but I'm kind of thinking it was a pretty great one-liner. You know, good. you ever watch Arnold Schwarzenegger movies? He's got the greatest one-liners. There's one movie, Commando. Don't watch this movie, it's bad. The end of Commando, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you a spoiler, Arnold wins. But at the end of Commando, he's facing off against the bad guy and, you know, fight, 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 fight. He pulls a pipe that's got steam in it. I don't know how, right? I'm thinking that was connected somehow, but not if you're Arnold Schwarzenegger. You just rip it off the thing and it's a pipe and he throws it at the guy like a spear and he throws it hard enough that it literally goes through the guy and pins him to a wall. And while the guy's hanging there on the pipe and breathing his last breaths and there's steam coming out of the pipe, Arnold says, let off some steam. <laughs> One-liners. I don't know what the man said, but I'm thinking it was a one-liner. Hopefully better than that. I can only imagine what I would be thinking. What? Wait a second. The last thing I remember, I was dead. I don't know. And then Jesus presents him to the mother, to his mother. And the word there literally means give or bestow. So resurrection led to restoration. Such a beautiful thought. So let's talk about the resurrection for you and I. When Jesus rose from the grave, he began a period of time wherein the first resurrection takes place. Matthew 27, 52 through 53, and then Revelation 20, verse 6. The first resurrection began with Jesus' resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15, 20 says, But now Christ is risen from the dead and, those, and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. The period of the first resurrection ends just prior to the millennial reign of Christ. And we read about that in Revelation 20, verses 4 through 6. Now, why do I say that? There are two schools of thought when it comes to the first resurrection. One school of thought is that the first resurrection is an event. And that that event takes place right before the millennial reign. The second school of thought is that the resurrection is not an event, but a period that began with Jesus' resurrection and ends just prior to his return. And when I say just prior, I mean not like a couple days. I believe it's a period. And this is the reason I say that. One is this verse in 1 Corinthians 15, that Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. The big one is because we are told that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. That's a promise to us. When the thief on the cross next to Jesus said, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom, Jesus looked at him and said, today you will be with me in paradise. 
Now, there's all kinds of really fun theological arguments, and we could have a lot of fun talking about it, because there are some who think, well, yes, so to be absent with the body is to be present with the Lord, so when our physical body dies, our spirit goes to be with the Lord, but we don't get our resurrection body until the millennial reign. Why? Well, because, no, you can't actually find a really good scripture to support that. Uh, 1 Corinthians, as you continue in 15, says, we'll all be changed in the moment, in the twinkling of an eye. The other way sounds like we have to wait. I hate waiting. So I believe that the resurrection is a period of time. And there's a lot of really smart people that, that they don't agree with me. I agree with them. There are some who go the other way, and they say it's an event. This is not something I would argue over. This really falls under the, the terms or the, the uh, umbrella of eschatology, and I don't like arguing over eschatology. We're all going to agree that we're going to be raised for eternity, which is awesome. But there are two resurrections. One is a resurrection to life. The other is a resurrection that is called the second death which ends in eternal punishment in the lake of fire. You also read about that up in Revelation chapter 20. Two resurrections. And we're told that if you take part in the first resurrection, the second death will have no power over you. So how do we take part in the first resurrection? It's pretty easy, actually. Believe in Jesus. And you believe in Jesus now. John eleven twenty five through 26 says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And I think that is a question that he asks every person who has ever heard it. I am the resurrection and the life. If you believe in me, you're never going to die. But you have to believe it. Last night, um, oh, I got to find it. John chapter 5, verse 28 and 29. I, you know, I read my Bible before I go to bed at night and I'm reading through the book of John right now and I came across this and I'm like, man, I needed to come across this earlier in the week so it could have gone into my notes. So there's actually a note on my phone to remind me of this, uh, but thankfully the Holy Spirit just did that. See, Holy Spirit's better than an iPhone. John 5, 28. Do not marvel at this. For the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. It's so straightforward. You are in one camp or you are in the other. When Jesus says, if you believe in me, you will live forever. Do you believe this? You either do or you don't. There's no middle ground. There's no well I hope when I get to heaven that all have done good enough to get in. You are lost. 
And if you don't change it, by receiving Christ as Savior, you're lost forever. That's all there is to it. But the resurrection, because God is so good, it goes beyond eternal life. Well, isn't eternal life enough? Yeah, it really is. It's like, so, y'all know, I used to be really fat. And um, one of these days, well, some of you have seen a picture. One of these days, I'll just put one up there, and you'll see how big I really was. I was the scourge of the buffet. When I went into an all-you-could-eat buffet, they started to quiver and shake. One time, we went to a, what was the golden one? Golden Corral. Golden Corral. We went to a Golden Corral. I ate 12 plates of food. Seven of them were savory. And I'm not talking, I put a piece of chicken on a plate and called it a plate. I ate 12 plates of food. Seven savory, five dessert. Oh, I'm not good at a lot of things, but I'm good at eating. And it was one of those things there. You go to the buffet and you're like, oh, look, fried chicken. I love fried chicken. So you get fried chicken and mashed potatoes and gravy and you go back. But wait, there's more. Look at this. They got lasagna. So you get a plate filled with lasagna, garlic bread. You go back, sit down and eat that. But wait, there's more because then they put the prime rib out or then they put the, the steaks out or then they put the barbecue ribs out and there's just always more and there's always more. And then all of a sudden there's dessert and there's 84 desserts and an ice cream machine and a there's just always more. That's how it is with our faith. It's how it is with our Savior. Romans 8, 9, and 11. 9 through 11. But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. And if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. Now listen. But if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. The resurrection power of the Holy Spirit lives in us to empower us for a life that honors God now and is the guarantee of our eternal life according to Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, when our physical body dies and we take part in the first resurrection. Think about that. Try to comprehend what that means. Because I can't. The power that raised Jesus from the dead lives in you as a believer in Christ. And we walk around like we have nothing. Now, I'm not saying we should walk around like we are everything, because we're not. But we have that power in us. Now, that power is not there so we can do whatever we want. 
That power is not there so we can get our will done. That power is not there so we can impress other people, so we can be famous, blah, 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 blah. That power is there so we can honor him with our lives. So we can accomplish his will and his purpose and expand his kingdom while we're here. But we do have that power. It's absolutely incredible. If you want to hurt your brain this week, just take five minutes on every given day and think about the fact that the God of all creation dwells inside of you. But how? Well, we know through the Holy Spirit. Yeah, but how? I don't know. How much power is that really? Well, it was enough to create everything that exists and to raise Jesus from the dead. Oh, really? How big is God? The Bible says that he holds the universe, which they estimate to be some 15 billion light years across, in the span of his hand. The span of your hand is the tip of your thumb to the tip of your pinky. Now, I was really excited when I got big enough that I could palm a basketball. It's got to be slightly underinflated. But still, I can palm a basketball. Right? And I thought, I got big hands. Look, I can do this. And God's like, really? 15 billion light years across. It's just a guess. And he's like, it's right there. And yet, he knows the number of hair on your head. He knows you're lying down and you're waking up. He knows every thought, every action, because he loves you that much. And just to make it better, he said, here, I'm going to give you the greatest power in all of existence to dwell inside of you. Not to do what you want, but so you can do what I want. Verse 16 and 17. Fear came upon all. Well, yeah. And they glorified God, saying, a great prophet has risen up among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him went throughout all Judea and all the surrounding region. Three responses to this miracle from those who witnessed it. Fear, glory, and recognition. They were seized with fear. This is not anything that any of them had ever seen before. And I could only imagine how I would respond if I were at a funeral and some guy in a robe with long hair walked up, flipped the lid open and said, dude, get up. And the guy got up. That would probably freak me out a little bit. Maybe it wouldn't you, but I would be a little freaked out. Right now, we know what the scriptures say. We know that this is a possibility by the power of God and his grace. But they didn't know that. They'd never seen or heard of anything like this before. So they responded with fear, which I think is a proper response. A reverence for who God is, for all he does, for his power, his perfection, his love, his grace. I think it's appropriate in this situation and in every situation. Hebrews 12, 28 through 29 says, Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear, for our God is a consuming fire. Fear. Second, glory. They all glorified God. The word there is doxazo. It's where we get doxology, and it means to render glory, honor, or magnify. Now, when a genuine work of God takes place, God will always be the one 
to receive the glory. Whether it's a human being that he works through or something else, God is the one who must receive the glory. And whenever a person or a church or a ministry or anything else, they try to take the glory for themselves, nothing good will come of it. Nothing good will come of it. Do you remember Nebuchadnezzar? Well, maybe you not remember, but you've read about him way back in the book of Daniel chapter 4. Nebuchadnezzar was warned. Your pride is going to cause you problems. And Daniel comes to the king and he goes, may this be for somebody else, but here's the deal. If you don't give God glory, you're going to basically become like an animal and live out in the forest for a while. And a year goes by. Nebuchadnezzar, he does a decent job. And he's walking out on his patio, I can't remember, his patio's roof overlooking the city of Susa, which according to reports was a magnificent city in the ancient world. Look at the kingdom that I have built. Oh, bad idea, Nebuchadnezzar. At that moment, a voice from heaven speaks and went, nope, uh-uh. Now you're going to, that prophecy is going to come true. And for seven times, maybe it was seven years, maybe it was seven months, maybe it was seven seasons, we're not actually told. Nebuchadnezzar was insane. He wouldn't take a bath. He was eating grass, his fingernails grew, his hair grew, he wouldn't wear clothes. Uh, according to history, the only reason the kingdom remained under his power is because of Daniel. That not only did Daniel take care of Nebuchadnezzar and keep from the rest of the kingdom what was going on, but he ran the kingdom in Nebuchadnezzar's place. Until one day, Nebuchadnezzar looked at heaven and he humbled himself. And then God brought him back. And then Nebuchadnezzar wrote his testimony. He is the only pagan king who wrote an entire chapter of the Bible. Daniel chapter 4. God is the one who gets the glory. Romans 4.20 He did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God. So if you ever see somebody talking, oh, look at this great ministry I built, or look at this wonderful church, or look at the... Step back. The third thing they did was recognize. The people recognized that Jesus was a great prophet that had risen among them and that God had visited his people. Now, does this mean that they recognized that Jesus was indeed God or their Messiah? I don't know. But they did recognize the work of God through him. And of course, Jesus is God. Uh, 2 Timothy, no, Titus chapter 2, verse 11 through 14 says that the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people zealous for good works. So we're going to close. Today, we looked at two inevitable realities. Everybody says two things are guaranteed in life, death and taxes. But I'm going to tell you that there are two things that are guaranteed, death and resurrection. Because of sin, we will all die. Unless the rapture happens, because of sin, 
we will all die. And no matter what your belief in Jesus is, we will all be resurrected. The type of resurrection, which one of the two we participate in, is determined by our relationship with Jesus now. Do you want to be part of the first resurrection? The resurrection to life? The resurrection of Jesus Christ that promises us life now and eternal life to come? Or, wait for it, do you want to be part of the resurrection that leads to judgment and eternal condemnation? Head scratcher, right? Which one do I want to be part of? It amazes me that we have to ask this question. I've met too many people who have chosen the latter. It breaks my heart and it boggles my mind. The fact of the matter is the choice is yours. Now, it's all God's work. Your choice doesn't save you. God saves us. But we have to choose to receive that free gift of salvation. And we are invited by God over and over again throughout the scriptures to choose life. So I'm going to do what I always do. Close with a couple questions. The first one, have you chosen the free gift of salvation and eternal life that is offered to you by God which has been accomplished for you through Jesus' death and resurrection. Which one have you chosen? Do you want to live forever and have abundant life now, purpose now, freedom from sin, the resurrection power of God living inside of you? It's easy. Come to know Christ as Savior. If you don't want that, you have been clearly warned of the consequences. Please, I don't know, I say it all the time. Maybe you're hearing this recording sometime, maybe you're on Facebook right now. I don't know where you are, maybe you're right here. But if you have not received Christ as Savior, today is the day. Don't, don't take a chance. It's a stupid thing to do. Oh, you just called me stupid. Yeah, rejecting Christ is stupid. Why would anybody choose to burn in the eternal lake of fire forever where the worm never dies and the fire is never quenched a place of outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth anybody sound like a vacation spot right maybe norwegian has a cruise that goes there no i don't want that oh you're just trying to scare people yes i am I am literally trying to scare the hell out of you. Because I don't want you to be there. Now, I know I'm not going there. And I know most of the people that I care deeply about aren't going there either. There's a few that won't listen. And that breaks my heart. I don't want you going there either. Whoever needs to hear that. Now for the rest of us. I like this question. What type of resurrection do you need right now? Because if you know Christ as Savior, you will be blessed to participate in the first resurrection. 
You will spend eternity in the presence of God. But what kind of resurrection do you need right now? Do you need God to resurrect your relationship with him? Maybe you're struggling there. Maybe you've walked away. I don't know. Do you need God to resurrect a different relationship? Maybe it's a relationship with a spouse or a child or a cousin or a parent or a friend. Do you need God to resurrect your hope today? I don't know, folks. Have you looked outside? It's getting rough. But my hope is in Christ. My hope is in his purpose, in his eternity. So I don't care what the news says. I don't care what goes on in Washington or what goes on at the Capitol in Denver or what even goes on here in City Hall in Gunnison. None of it matters. Oh, yes, it does. No, it doesn't. One thing matters. The gospel of Jesus Christ. And if all of it sets ablaze tomorrow... It's all gone, right? The government's gone, the food's gone, the nukes are flying. You find somebody close to you and you tell them about Jesus. And if it doesn't end tomorrow, the nukes don't fly, the food's still on the shelves, whatever, grab somebody and tell them about Jesus. But maybe you've lost hope because of the way our world is going. Seek God. Ask him to resurrect it. Do you need him to resurrect your purpose or calling? Maybe you have a dream that seems to have died and you need him to resurrect that dream. Where do you need the resurrection power of God to work in your life today? And I say it all the time because it's true. I can only answer this question for me, not for you. Yes, I rhymed on purpose. Whatever it is, I want you to know, my precious brothers and sisters, that he's here with you right now. He will be with you when you leave. And all we have to do is ask. We have an enemy. He is a thief, and he does not come except to steal and kill and destroy. But we have a Savior who said to us that I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. It's in John 10, 10. Now, if I'm right, and I am confident that I am right, because you can ask my wife, I'm always right. <laughs> Except for those times when I'm wrong. But they're, they're so few and far between. There has literally been times where I've gone a whole hour without being wrong. But if I'm right, and I am confident I'm right about this, we all have something that either the enemy has succeeded in stealing or destroying from our lives, or he is trying to steal and destroy in our lives. I guarantee it. If you come up to me after service, you know my life is perfect. The enemy's not doing anything like that. You need help. Go to the eye doctor. I don't know. You clearly can't see what's going on around you. I'm not trying to convince you that something's wrong if it's not wrong. I just, we have an enemy. This is what he does. And as much as I hate to admit it, he's really good at it. 
So I'm betting that he has either succeeded or is trying to steal or destroy something for your life. I know he's done it to me. My confidence doesn't end there. Because we also have a Savior who died and rose again to conquer our enemy and to give us abundant life. And just like he spoke life into the widow's dead son, he can and will speak life into you as well. Wherever it is. Seek him. Ask him. Maybe you don't even know what it is. Let him show you. But the resurrection, because we can make a mistake, we can, we can look at the resurrection as being something that happened 2,000 years ago when Jesus rose from the dead, and we praise God for that. Or we can look ahead to the resurrection that's going to take place whenever that happens, but we don't predict that, and we forget about the resurrection he wants to do right now. I don't know what it is going to be for you. What is? I know what it needs to be for me. I don't know what it needs to be for you, but he does. And maybe you do too. Whatever it is, he wants to do it. He wants to speak life into you. Let's get out of his way and let him do it. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the life you give us in Christ Jesus, our Savior. Thank you for the promises of the resurrection. And God, I don't know what anybody here specifically needs in this area. Maybe they need just to become part of the first resurrection. If there's anybody listening who needs that, don't go anywhere without fixing that today. And for those of us who know you, God, I give you glory that you have saved us. And I ask that you would speak life into us. Whatever area of our lives need that, Father, speak life into us, we ask. Not so we can be great, but so that we can show the world your greatness. In Jesus' name, amen.